You are listening to Black Talk, 12 hours of Afrocentric programming hosted by the Black Students Network of McGill to kick off Black History Month. Good evening. Welcome to CKUT. This is the second edition of Rebranding Africa, focusing on all things Africa, politics, economics, culture, sponsored by BSN McGill to celebrate Black History Month. My name is Hylia Magashi, and I will be your host tonight. Joining me tonight on the segment Rebranding Africa are four passionate Pan-Africanists, Umu, Nicholas, Yasin, and Munesu. Can I ask you to please briefly introduce yourselves? Hi, guys. Uh, so welcome to the second edition of Rebranding Africa. I'm super excited. Uh, my name is Munesu Ishemafusire. Um, I'm a second-year political science student and also minor in African studies. And, uh, yeah, man, excited to, you know, talk about the issues and see what the discourse is in contemporary issues. Hey, guys, I'm excited to be here, too, uh, on uh, Rebranding Africa. My name is Nicholas Toronga. I'm a U3 management student, and uh, I'm very excited to talk about the issues leading to Africa. Hi, everyone. My name is Yasin Gum. I'm a second-year student in philosophy and political science, and I'm minoring in African studies. Uh, I'm also originally from Senegal. Hi, I am Omu. I am a third year and final semester in poli-sci and Islamic studies with a minor in African studies. I am of Genyan and Bajan descent. So yeah, that's my intro. And I am a U3 studying political science, African studies, and entrepreneurship. And I am Ghanaian, Beninese, um, and Ivorian. Our first topic tonight is African identity. Guys, I want to ask you, what does it mean to be African? How do you define yourself? Um, where are you from? Would anyone want to start? Munesu, maybe? Yeah, sure, man. Y'all keep starting all night. <laughs> um, yeah, but the way that I view myself as an African really is more as a Pan-African. So, I mean, when I use that, I mean to say that, like, in a more transnational way, in a way that I view that, you know, we're more connected across the continent from different regions and under this whole idea of, you know, political, economic, and just social integration. And there's a lot more that we have in common um, than we have as opposed, you know, and so that's the way that I sort of view myself as an African. And as I, how do I view myself as an African in the diaspora? Um, well, I mean, I can look at the fact that, you know, how I try to contribute as much as I can to, you know, um, my country, which is Zimbabwe, um, by writing articles and criticizing the government where I can. Please don't make this go public. <laughs> I still want to go home. I still want to go home. But, you know, I really do take some serious critique on what the government is doing. And so that's my contribution um, as, um, as an, a citizen in the diaspora. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yusin? Um, regarding the evolution in which I see myself as, like, an African rather than saying directly, like, Senegalese, um, it actually really changed once I came uh, to McGill to an environment where where I wasn't only like surrounded by like West Africans and I got more people to connect with uh, because I am originally from Senegal, as I said, but I was born and raised in Paris. So I had this uh, conflicting identity when I was uh, like younger. Am I French? Am I Senegalese? So like in between countries, but I never identified like with a continent as much as I do now. And so, yeah. I'm really grateful for McGill to like, in a way, have given me this like environment 
um, in which I can call myself like an African and connect with like my African brothers and sisters. Um, j just before Omu or Nicholas jump in, how difficult is it um, to fit in a myriad of different cultures, being in between? Well, um, there's a French rapper who's Kerry James who said like to love like aimer la France c'est uh, tu peux pas aimer la France sans avoir le syndrome de Stockholm, which is like you can't love France without having the Stockholm syndrome. So I'm a proud French person, but I'm also a proud Senegalese person, and that's really conflicting in the way that like France colonized Senegal, <laughs> and so you have to acknowledge that like painfulness in your identity so that used to be like difficult growing up I guess especially because I wasn't surrounded by a lot of like Senegalese people or even black people but it's just something that you have to come around you like you do your own research like you just like do some like self-awareness work and like I mean I'm not saying that like I'm like I like I achieved that completely like there's always like room for like work but so far I have worked on like that conflicting identity, I guess like to like a reasonable amount, which is making me satisfied with like my multiples identities. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah, I was, I was actually just gonna jump in as well. <clears throat> as well, when you look at for instance your identity when you leave the continent, right? Like that's pretty special. I've grew up on the continent for the and spent the most of my life on the continent. And um, again, like what you're saying is that you realize that you're more of something when you leave it. And I think it also comes from, you know, the people that you're surrounded by who sort of look at you as a representation of that place. So in a way, like I'm an unofficial ambassador, you know? Um, and so like in, in by, by taking up that role, I really have to understand myself and understand my culture. So I think that's how, you know, my identity becomes more exaggerated and, more prevalent to myself as well. And that's how I feel way more connected than when I was there. Um, Nicholas, you're also from Zimbabwe. How do you think your move from Zimbabwe to here affected your identity? Has it changed? Has it evolved? Um, uh, well, I would say that in maybe in a magnificent way, I, I was sort of a Pan-Africanist growing up, you know, reading Kwame Nkrumah, Patrice Lumumba and all this. I, and I've... Uh, been connected to a couple of Africans because, like, I had an opportunity to travel here and there and also interact with um, uh, students from and young people from different uh, countries, Kenya, Ghana, something like that. But when you cross over the Atlantic and you come here, it's completely different because uh, now, like, I don't want to be someone else or I don't think of America as the America. I'm here. Mm -hmm. I'm now thinking, like, well, I'm African, you know, I better identify as an African. And also, you know, like there's so much, uh, I think, diversity in terms of, like, for example, McGill is a very international school and it brings the whole world to you. Like you meet people from Senegal, you meet people from Mauritania, you meet people from small countries, big countries. And, you know, as you come together as Africans, you see that you're different, but you're also similar. So that puts you in sort of a... A, in a macro position where you're now more passionate about African issues as a whole than maybe, of course, you narrow down on your country, but like I think the interest about Africa just grew so much when I came here. And also seeing the stereotypes that people have about Africans, uh, it makes me love being African more and trying mm -hmm. to stand in a way and say, no, Africa is like, it's a big country, it's a big continent. It's also different, but there's a few things that we are very 
there are, there are many things as well that we are very similar, uh, that we have in common, and I think that just makes it more interesting. So, so would you say you're more African than Zimbabwean, or <coughs> which 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 comes before? It's an interesting question. Um, it's it's quite interesting. <laughs> Uh, I would say I would say I'm more African, to be honest, because um, because like right now, for sure, I've been like my experience. I've been positioned in a way that obviously I'll interact with more people, not only from my country. I'll interact with many people who some who have not even been to Africa. So I've been an ambassador to Africa, even speaking about countries that I don't come from. Uh, but also, you know, like where I was, where I grew up, where I spent much of my time is Zimbabwe. So the issues of Zimbabwe tend to take precedence. But uh, I would say I'm more African. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. Umu, could we get your your input on this question? Well, okay. So mine's kind of different because my my dad is from Ghana, my mom's from Barbados, so I'm Caribbean and African. I'd say my whether I view myself as being African like changed over the years. When I grew up, I grew up in Barbados and in, within the Caribbean community a lot more than my Guinean community. So I did believe you myself as being Caribbean. And um, as I grew older and I kind of like come to the realization that, hey, like I'm also African and um, just learning the history of like um, how Caribbean people got to the islands they, are, they currently live in and reside in, I really had to come to terms with like my African, like I am Caribbean, but Caribbean people come from Africa essentially, right? So every part of me is African and it's something that I had to like kind of come to terms with and describing myself as being African is it's something that encompasses who I am much more than just being Guinean because also I always do get the comments that I don't look Guinean because Guinean people apparently have a certain look that I don't have so um after I went to Ghana in 2016 that's when I kind of like formally like realized like hey like I'm actually African and that encompasses every part of who I am and it's the best way I can describe myself that like doesn't like um, disregard any part of my my, my heritage or my uh, my ethnic makeup, etc. So I think yeah, I think as I got older, I realized that like I'm more African. So did the Ghanaians think you're Ghanaian? No, sometimes like a lot of them think I'm like either from Mali. I've gotten um, Ivorian. I've gotten Nigerian. Oh, I've gotten wow. Mauritania as well. Like no one no one thinks I'm Ghanaian, sadly. But I mean, so, it's okay. So how how how, do, how did how does that affect you? That your own people, mm. your own your yeah. own, own countrymen don't see you as Ghanaian, and why mm. why is that? Well, I think partly is because of my name, because I have a super like Islamic sounding name and like Arab name. So like people are kind of confused because usually like West African Muslims have like a West African family name, but my name my family name is Abdurrahman. So people are kind of confused about where that comes from. So I get like I know my name doesn't help with the confusion. Mm. But I don't like fall them like when I grew up when I was growing up, I was definitely like kind of salty about it and and I felt like left out because obviously I mean, I don't speak Tree or Hausa, and I don't look Guinean, so it's a lot of things that they could hold against me as not, not being Guinean enough, and it was really easy to do, whereas, like, I sp Barbados people speak, they speak English, right? So it's like, I fall in line with that criteria much more easily than I do with the Guinean criteria, so um, it was hard growing up, but now I just come to terms with it. I'm like, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, I don't look Guinean, cool. Haha. And Ghana Jalof doesn't bang. <laughs> First of all, Ghana Jalof bangs, okay? Ghana Jalof bangs. Nigerian Jalof is not, it's not it. But yeah, um, like I totally can identify with like what you said because like a lot of people told me that I don't look Senegalese. So like when, as soon as I talk, like they know that I grew up in France and I feel at the end of the day, it's not about like, I mean, you're always going to look the way you look. And for me, like my accent is like way too far to like come to like a, like a reasonable, like, 
thing. But I feel like at the end of the day, as Mune said, like it's about it's also about what you do. And at some point, like French people are always going to see me as Senegalese. Senegalese people are always going to see me as French. And like you, I mean, I'm, I can't speak on your behalf, but like you on campus have been like really involved with like like uh, the Miguel African Student Society. So like you've been doing things that are claiming like your African identity and like you're doing things on campus to promote the image of Africa. You've been, you, you're like doing this show, you're like minoring in African studies. So like at the end of the day, it's like you always gonna look the way you look and people are always gonna say things, but what matters is what you do about it. I kind of struggle with that because <clears throat> As Umu said, I don't, I don't speak. My dad's from Ghana. I don't speak any languages from Ghana. My mom's from Benin and the Ivory Coast. I don't speak any languages from those two countries. Um, and I've often gotten the comment, yeah, but you've learned Spanish. Have you learned other languages? Why are you doing that and not being able to learn it's any language from your I can ask that again. I can ask that again. I know I know you speak Zulu and Munesu speaks Shona. Do you think that it's important to be able to to speak the language from your country? Does that does that emphasize your identity? <laughs> well, I think I think to a certain extent it does. Uh, I took a Swahili class and uh, I I I fail to understand Swahili because well, it's a Bantu language, and I think like language is part of the identity, you know. And um, investing some time learning it it sort of. Uh, I think it's an endorsement to your culture, and it sort of gives you validation to to relate with the common people. So to a certain extent, for sure, I would say language is, is, is good. I always argue with Mune that Yoshona is not up to standard. <laughs> but so <laughs> then, then what, what, what do you do when you are from such a multicultural background that you'd have to learn five or six different languages? How, do, how does that play? Well, I think like, well, language also, I think it's it, it just it's a result of maybe the family culture. Like if you speak maybe more English or more French at home, that that will be understandable. But I think like it's it's just good to to be able to make a short conversation. You know, maybe just just one language, maybe two, maybe maybe Zulu, maybe you know. I I find it hard, like especially if you once had an experience to spend much time in Africa and you. You cannot have like one local language. To me, that's uh, that's a bit interesting. <laughs> that's <also laughs> not, not practical not because people are going to think you're a tourist. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like if you go in the streets or on the market, just 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 a conversation. <laughs> um, guys, I'd like to talk about land expropriation. Taking the example of South Africa, um, it is it is a button issue and hot button issue in South Africa. Um, I know Munesu and Nicholas are quite familiar with this this issue. I know Umu wrote a, a research paper on this. Can you please get your your insight? I mean, I'll just jump in real quick with that one. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, the land expropriation issue, I think you rightly put it, it's a hot-button issue. And so, I mean, the whole thing about, uh, you know, uh, land expropriation, right, in South Africa, in the, in the South African context, it talks about how we should take back the land from the white uh, colonizers and so historically right the Brit uh, the, the Dutch initially first came and then the British came and they seized most of the land and so now you look at the South African you know um, <clears throat> makeup of like you know who who owns what in South Africa 70 75 percent of 
of the total land is owned by, you know, white capital, white monopoly, right? And then you have the majority of the black people who own much less than that. Um, and so that's the whole idea of land expropriation. And I mean, I look at uh, people like, you know, Judas Malema, who's really become a personality of late. Um, and he talks about, you know, land expropriation without compensation. So we should take back this land and not compensate these people because they've taken our land. Is that, legi- our land. Is that, is that legitimate? Is that a legitimate, is that a legi- legitimate statement? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, we look back to like 94, right, when Mandela comes into power. And he fully recognizes that first we need to get political liberties and we need to first emancipate ourselves. And I see that. And the next step and the next phase in that, which he, I think, subscribed to as well, you know, during the independence um, and, you know, the breaking away of apartheid and just, you know, moving away from that regime is that we need to now make black people economically free. And so that's where the land expropriation issue comes into play is how do we now make sure that, you know, there's, we, we've equally distributed, maybe not necessarily equally distributed, but we've, you know, allowed for the black men to, you know, uh, arrive actively, you know, within the business of the country and also, you know, uh, yeah, enjoy enjoying the sea in, in, in the land. But wouldn't, wouldn't this awaken the ghost of apartheid? In what sense? That if you now went to white farmers and said, listen, because you guys or your bus were taken aback from you, wouldn't, wouldn't that cause some social cleavage and bring back factions within South African society? Well, for me, the way that I look at it, right, is <clears throat> we have two things. We can either say, okay, sure, that's the way that it is and leave it the way that it is, or we can challenge the status quo. And then we look again back to South Africa and we realize that it's one of the, the most, you know, it has the highest inequalities in the world. And it comes down to the, to the issue of you don't own the land. And I can't remember which, um, uh, which one of the founding fathers and one of the independent uh, leaders, I think it must have been Jomo Kenyatta, who talks about you're not free until you're economically free, until you enjoy the land. And so for me, that's the issue is that like we do need to, you know, seize the means of production if we're going to be economically free, if we're going to be economically free. And so, I mean, we do have to find solutions, whether we should not not compensate or compensate is the discussion that we should have. But like we need to redistribute the world. And that's my view on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to add a few things like we come from Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is the model of land expropriation. (laughs) (laughs) That's gone wrong. That's gone wrong. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's been a case study, you know, but what I always think is that the 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 idea of land expropriation is not wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe the execution, maybe. But Mm -hmm. um, this is a question of all Africa and um some people, they don't just come up front about land expropriation, but it's a real issue, whether it's in Kenya, whether it's wherever, wherever they were colonizers, the people, our forefathers were driven forcibly. Women mm-hmm. raped, people killed, and the land was acquired, right? Uh, by force. And like right now, there's no, like, no one really paid for that. And you know the problem with land as an economic resource? It's something that you cannot create. It's something like land is just land. You cannot create more. No one creates land. You know, you just find it. It's a heritage, right? So if you look at it, it's a, it's a very big issue that has to be addressed with so much care that even the South Africans, the white South African South Africa, or wherever in the African continent, they were they are not original to African continent. You know, we have issues with migration, people crossing the Mediterranean, right? And you know, Europe closing doors for Africans, right? Because it's not a place for Africans. Like 
so the reverse should not should also be true you know like africans have to own their their resources and have a say on how they are distributed mm-hmm. i don't support chaos i don't support killing people over that like the like what the colonizers did to us but i support a more like a, a win win situation yeah maybe maybe you know if you say win win it's very if you go to soweto you've been to south africa you know yeah. if you go to soweto and you go to to santon there are two odds if you go to captain kaelisha and you go to camps bay two yeah. two odds you know the other one is like you think you're in canada the other one you think you're in somewhere some place that doesn't exist so i think i think the truth is that land expropriation is a real issue uh maybe maybe without maybe it just has to follow some due processes but after all you know the land was never acquired by any legal means so 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 what you talked about the zimbabwe case what lessons should we draw from that example and well, how 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 should, how should the african government act differently i think first of all africans should support that that those initiatives like land expropriation because it affects everyone who was colonized you know So like if you single out one country the reason why Thomas Sankara was 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 murdered is because he was standing for all Africans and he was trying to mobilize everyone right if you leave someone out then they just they become prone to you know sanctions and everyone because no one is supporting but it's an issue that's affecting everyone no one has land but if you go, I was in South Africa in summer if you go to Cape Town if you see someone driving along the beach that person is not black if you see someone on top of the roof hammering something or selling oranges on the intersection it's black so the inequalities are real and you got to you got to first the truth and you know have a more due process toward the redistribution of land it's a key resource no one created it it's our heritage mm-hmm. so why don't we have to talk about it definitely definitely you seen um yeah i like really agree with everything that you said previously about the necessity of addressing this problem but my, i have a question more regarding uh the lack of compensation that would be um made by the state if they were to like uh get that land back and because that land was obviously taken in really illegitimate ways but i was wondering if like do you think that um having it being taken back by the state in a way that a white south african for example would see as illegitimate because they would not have compensation Do you think that this is going to do like more harm than good or this like this harm done to them is going to be necessary? Yeah, I think like I think like for most of these things, you know, this obviously there was harm when this land was taken and there's going to be harm when you try to redistribute and redistribute the effects. I think compensation is important, but if you look at the if you look at the ratios, you go to a white farms in South Africa they can take a land like kilometers of land yet a black zulu or Xhosa person doesn't have a home they don't have a small stand so if you look at the ratios they are staggering like it's the inequalities the gini index the gini coefficient that money was talking about is real so i think they have to compensate to a certain point but also by compensating they are not really doing anything they are not redressing because they're still taking from the government coffers like burdening the same taxpayer i think i think like they have to really see how they can they don't they cannot compensate the same way that they would compensate by market values they can just redress to make sure that there's a, a fair proportion of 
Yeah, I think I'm explaining with So I do agree with all your points made. And I do think that land expropriation is a form of like the African state regaining its agency in terms of deciding what happens to its land. And I'm against compensation. I know I'm not Southern African, but I wrote a, a, a paper on this. And the only reason I do think that like compensation is not something that should be at the forefront of people's minds is because as Nicholas said, this land wasn't obtained legally. I mean, I mean, the West like bases its values on Lockean theories of the del development of land. If you work the land, then it's yours. But I mean, they came from abroad. They came into a territory that wasn't theirs. So the fact that like African states should now then pay to get land that was already theirs back is not fair to me. White people refuse to pay for the damages caused by slavery, and they don't believe in retribution, like in um, yeah, in paying those damages. That the Haiti ha Haiti had to pay so much money to the French government to gain its independence, and that money was never given back to Haiti, and they were paying for basically not wanting to be a colony anymore. So why then are African states required to pay white settlers because they're settler colonial colonialists for land that was already theirs? I don't understand that concept, and I don't agree with it. But the fact that the point that you made about um, Africa as a whole kind of standing together in terms of like um, seeing this land expropriation project through is very important because when I did my research, I realized that a lot of the threats the West would make would be like, oh, we're going to remove these contracts from these multinational companies in terms of like farming, or et cetera. So economic sanctions are a very big thing and they're a scary thing because um, we don't exist in this world on our own, right? It's a world systems, I'm a world systems theorist, okay? So we... There's certain uh, sanctions that could be put in place on African nations if they don't comply to Western values or Western modes of like trade, et cetera. So the fact that like we have to be unified in terms of if you want to see land expropriation implemented within the continent, I think that's really important and a point that needs to be like further emphasized if we don't want it to be like the case the case of like Zimbabwe, for example, because I know um, it didn't go well there and you guys are still living through the economic yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's yeah. true. Because like one thing uh, that that people miss about Zimbabwe, they take mm -hmm. it from a political standpoint, but it's mm -hmm. not entirely political. The mm -hmm. British and the U.S. had agreed to mobilize funds to Lancaster facilitate agreement. Yeah. Lancaster the Lancaster Agreement, agreement yeah. and they mm -hmm. backfired. So mm -hmm. people were still coming from the war. They didn't get their freedom for like on a silver platter. They had mm -hmm. some people. They had to sacrifice some people. They still had the guerrilla mentality they were like yo you know what you don't want to give us money to facilitate we're kicking you out mm -hmm. so like it didn't go well i think i don't think anyone would wish that it went that way because obviously the white people were killed there so mm -hmm. many like we won't support like such such acts but you know we people have to also see that zimbabwe was negotiating from an individual standpoint and you know mm -hmm. we don't have big institutions like mm -hmm. african union standing mm -hmm. for things like this mm -hmm. because it's not only a zimbabwean issue it's a zambian issue right now we have like the chinese wanted to take the whole country in zambia on copa we have south africa we have like even if it's zimbabwe today south africa everyone is still gonna follow the same route mm -hmm. because the black african people they are grieving they they don't they don't like it. So they might not come out, but they don't like it. So it's just a feed-forward effect, and we're going to see more of this in the future. Will we find a solution to this problem without chaos? I mean, only time will tell. Yeah, yeah maybe like the e economic integration, and like if you have stronger institutions mm -hmm. negotiating from a macro perspective, like as issues that are affecting individual states, I think that would make much more sense than negotiating from an individual standpoint, because you just hammered by sanctions and when you have sanctions you become like Zimbabwe. You are listening to Black Talk, 12 hours of Afrocentric programming hosted by the Black Students Network of McGill to kick off Black History Month. Welcome back to CKUT with BSN McGill celebrating 
Black History Month. This is our show, Rebranding Africa, and we're coming back with the topic, social media in Africa. Um, over the summer, I had the opportunity to work in Mali on the Malian presidential elections. Um, and Big I was very interested... <laughs> <laughs> I was very interested in the role of social media, um, not only in the electoral process, but in mobilizing, um, giving news, um, and as a source of political mobilization, right? Um, and um, I've, I'm seeing a bigger trend um, on the continent where people are using social media, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, blogs, um, to share news, um, and to condemn anything the government is doing. But then on the other hand, you have this kind of government repression where the government is shutting down internet or um, censoring the internet or any social media. Um, and this is very important. The diaspora plays a huge role um, with the use of social media to share information, to mobilize, um, and, and to share their opinion, right? Um, so I want, I want to have your opinions on on the role of social media, um, how it can be used, um, and the ways the government um, is repressing the population um, by shutting down um, um, internet. Yeah, um, so I think uh, when it comes to, you know, social media, it can be one of the biggest drivers, you know, for, you know, uh, driving the narrative and sort of changing, you know, the political discourse as well. And this tends to happen especially within the youth bulge, right? So we understand that the continent has one of the biggest youth demographics between 15 to 24. There's at least like somewhere, somewhere around 200 million or so. And so the government is very fearful of not being able to control the narrative. That's why they then resort to, you know, these tendencies of shutting down the Internet, just barring people, you know, from engaging on social media and that sort of thing because it's a genuine threat. And so the way that I see it is that, I mean, we, the, the youth should continue doing what they're doing because it's working. And um, us as well in the diaspora can also play the role as well in terms of, you know, you know um, fanning out all the injustices that the governments are doing because it puts pressure on them. So I think the role of the social media has really been uh, one of the best gifts that we've had on the continent. I mean, you look at the Arab Spring, which drove out a number of dictators. I mean, that's, that's just the role of the social media. So I think it's, it's a powerful tool and we need to continue using it. Oh yeah, I think uh, social media is very important. Uh, I think that's why Resmone is saying is that like the governments are, are putting a clamp down, like what we have seen right now in Sudan first, I think, then in Congo, then in Zimbabwe. But I, I would want to say that that's a very medieval approach to uh, politics. So like you cannot shut down social media. Uh, but on the other hand, social media has been helpful in trying to help people organize and mobilize. Uh, campaigns, uh, protests, and like keeping everyone updated. So I think it's a real threat to the government. And if um, the world maybe or other institutions may stand uh, for people so that the governments don't get to the point where they uh, shut down social media, like I think social media is a pretty useful tool because we have cases like, for example, in Zimbabwe like that I'm more familiar with. There's a time when they could not allow BBC CNN and all these foreign journalists to come. So obviously the only substitute to that coverage is the local people who are taking pictures and videos. So the more they go online on internet, you know, it's still the same form of journalism, maybe even primary and more accurate because uh -huh. it's it's just 
recording things as they happen. So I think social media is a very useful tool. And um, yeah, it should not be disturbed by authorities. Omur Yassin, what do you guys think about it as a, as a tool of mobilization and communication? Um, I definitely see how it can be helpful and have seen that in history. And I can see how uh, the lack of access to it can be uh, really, really harmful. Uh, I guess we can talk later about what's going on. Like, I guess you guys can talk later about what's going on in Zimbabwe, for example, and how we can see that, like, having, like, a media platform is, like, vital for uh, politicians to actually be held accountable. Um, my other, like, uh, point, though, is regarding uh, countries where, like, there is a less authoritarian regime. And I'm going to be talking about Senegal because that's what I know um, better. And, like, Senegal is, like, a democracy, but it's, of course, like, not, like, it could be better. But I see uh, we have, like, the, you know how there are, like, a lot of, like, Twitter, like, the black Twitter, like, gay Twitter, there's, like, the Senegalese Twitter, which is, like, really, really politically active. Like, a lot of people got blocked from the president on that Twitter. But the problem is that those people, most of them are based in France. And then you look at the voting turnouts, like, percentage in France, and those people aren't actually voting. So, like, that's my problem with social media, like, uh, activism, political activism. It's, like, it's good when words are being followed by actions, but if you're just, like, like, if it's just word, like, it's not going to make a difference. And also, like, if you talk about, like, the rural situation in Senegal, but those people don't necessarily have access all the time i'm not saying like i'm not painting the stereotype or like people who have phones and stuff like that but it's true that people in rural areas don't have access to social media as much as the diaspora for example and i think that that can be a problem when you're only doing like a kind of armchair like activism yeah, no, I think you make very interesting points as well as uh, how are people also participating, you know, when it comes to the ballot. And so <clears throat> what you tend to see, right, is that there's a lot of people being involved, especially when it comes to like social media. I mean, you look at even you made you made the point about uh, Senegal and their Twitter. We also talked, make, I, was, I was making comments with Nick um, about last week um, about, you know, the Zimbabwean Twitter as well. Very active, you know, very interesting information that comes out all the time. But there is the slacktivism, right, which is, you know, people can talk extensively about this, but then you also look at the youth are not getting involved in voting. And, I mean, in a lot of cases as well, it's just because, you know, the youth is scared of the state. You know, the state, if you vote otherwise, is going to be coming out, and the way that they campaign is much more sophisticated, and it's 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 a scary regime, you know? Like, they really yeah. unleash the state on people. So that's why, also, we see more slacktivism, right, on the continent, because people are scared of the state. But I think it's different, because, like, in, like when it's the diaspora and they're, like, living in France, like, they could vote, but they just don't. It's, like... A totally different situation and in regard with what's happening in other countries of like voting is really like like something that is a challenge i think that's like you should consider that and you should realize that voting is like something that you ought to do especially if you claim to be an activist mm -hmm. so like i think those situations are different because there's a difference between being afraid of the repercussions and just being like, why, why am I going to vote? I get why they're discouraged, but still. So I, 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 don't, I don't think that social media is as a means to like 
translate into votes. I just think it just it just gives people the means to communicate and to convey information um, to people that aren't necessarily next next to them or in the same city. You could be abroad on the diaspora. So I think Africa has a big potential. It's the biggest biggest market for smartphones. Um, maybe in the next years we might find ourselves with a with a regulated voting system on social media. But um, I think we, we, we must consider and acknowledge that the pitfalls, which are instrumentalization and, and the fact that the government can can stop um, a number of people or people that are having an impact with, through social media um, to have access to it. Okay, so I think social media is revolutionary. Just in the case of, as Mili mentioned, the Arab Spring, I don't view social media as Yassine stated not as you stated, but I don't think it's a means to um, increase political participation per se, but I think it's a means of proliferation of ideas, right? If you see um, an authoritarian regime, like, um, let's say, for example, let's say, example, hmm. <laughs> I don't want to call anyone out. Okay, it's a fictional yo, country. Go, go, yo. No, it's okay. Yes. They're actually mean... coming for your head, but say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, it's, for example, an authoritarian regime, and you see the people within that specific country um, revolting or mobilizing in their popular protests, then if you're in a neighboring country that also has an authoritarian regime, you can look to that example and be like, hey, they're in the same, they're in a similar situation as us, and they're mobilizing. We can do that as well. It's a means of, so, like, of, um, kind of displaying solidarity and um, community and also like we've discussed the idea of, of Africa having to rise up um, unified and to counter the system altogether so I feel like social media is that tool that we use to kind of make those linkages between our different countries and kind of come together and that's what I think social media should be used for in the future if we want to have like the same um, kind of momentum as the Arab Spring did, starting off in Tunisia, then hitting Egypt, and hitting all these other countries, we need to have social media be essential, an essential part of political participation online as, as they did during that time period. So that's what I view social media as, not necessarily as like translating into actual ballots in a box and like electing a new president. Great, thanks. Guys, before we wrap up, I just want to have um, you guys' views on the current trends on the continent, on um, whatever is going on in the ICC, for example, um, the role of China on the China on the continent, the fact that Africa is becoming kind of a dynamic um, hub um, for the world. Can you guys include that in your closing statements, please? Yeah, man. Uh, so I guess when um, we look at geopolitics as well, um, we notice how China continues to play a, a big role, and, and you can look at the neo-colonialism as many people have coined it, right? Um, you look at how we had uh, the, you know, the forum on China-African engagement, and you have 51 head of states go there, but when it comes to the UN, we only sent 27. <laughs> I, I'm not opposed to that. I mean, I'm not opposed. I'm not opposed to that, but at the end of the day, it just shows you how, you know, China's making itself more relevant on the continent. And so, um, yeah, man, like when it comes to the geopolitics, yo, China's actually, it's, it's really head in the top. And I, I really want to see us move away from this dependency on anyone else, you know. Um, Kwame Nkrumah best says it. He says, we're neither going to look east nor west. We just look forward, you know. And like, we should not be relying on any of these people. I mean, Dambisa Moya puts it best that, this aid has kept us, you know, in, in, in the scenarios that we find ourselves, you know, is that the fact that we're just so dependent, we continue to perpetuate the same systems again and again. So, I mean, we need to just move away from this. Perfect. You see? Uh, yeah, regarding that, we said earlier, we all agreed earlier about how 
it was our duty as like Africans to stand together. And I think I want to end on like a more Pan-Africanist note, which is like, exactly like we don't need to always rely on other people. We should like try to like rely on ourselves. For example, like ECOS is like something that's really promise, like promising. And also like if we look at, I don't want to compare the West like with the West all the time because I don't think it's actually helpful. But if we look at the, um, the European e Union, their like economic strength is that two third of like the important exports are made within that region. And why should we always rely on one our colonial like, uh, like former col like colonial like powers, or um, like other countries? Like why shouldn't we rely on ourselves? And I think that's yeah to end it on a Pan-Africanist note. Oh yeah, for me I'll just say that Africa has to capitalize on the strength that it has. Like the youngest population right now, we have a very strong resource base and maybe try to have to build more stronger institutions and negotiating from a uh, from a macro perspective as a, as an Africa as a whole not negotiating differently with uh, countries like China uh, where we are seeing that the benefits are not distributive but they are distributive rather than integrative like they are benefiting China more so i just say like Africa has to really think forward as the continent, not of the future, but of now with young people and try to re to invest in initiatives and industries that can absorb young people and get them to, to do what they best. Well, I'll keep it simple. I think there needs to be less talking and more action from African leaders. I'm Guinean and President Nana Kufuado made a lovely speech to President Macron when he came. And um, I haven't seen the follow through with that, so I feel like if African leaders actually put action behind the lovely speeches they make on these international forums, we'd be in a better place. Thank you, guys. We've had a very interesting, insightful discussion about a melting pot of important issues pertaining to Africa. Um, Africa is rising, and Africa will become the continent it deserves to be. Um, on behalf of BSN, I'd like to thank CKUT for airing Black Talk, and our panelists, Umu Yassin, Nicholas, Munesu for their contribution to our rebranding Africa 2.0. Um, and there's a good night from me, your host, Haibi Amagashi. Have a great evening. <laughs>